Welcome to this first episode of the Computing Stories podcast. My name is Luca. I'm a student at a high school in Germany. And uh, this is actually the English version of my German podcast, Computing Machines. And for this first episode, I brought a very special guest. My now, my now quite good friend and uh, analog computer god, Bernd Ullmann. For those who never heard of you, who are you? <laughs> First of all, thank you very much for the invitation. Um, I'm a professor for business informatics um, at a university in Frankfurt, uh, but my heart belongs to unconventional computing and especially analog computing. So what interests me most of all is computing without algorithms. And uh, well, this episode is about the history of analog computers, but what are these analog computers actually? That is a very good question and one that I have to answer quite often. When one thinks about computing in general, nowadays one thinks about algorithmically programmed computers. So we have an algorithm, a step-by-step -step description of what to do that is executed by a digital computer. This is a very interesting idea and a very general idea. Basically, you can compute everything you want with an algorithmic computer, but the problem is algorithms are basically really step-by-step -step, uh, recipes for solving a problem, which makes algorithms inherently slow. An analog computer is based on a completely different principle. An analog computer consists of a multitude of computing elements, such as, for example, summers or multipliers or, and that is really cool, integrators. So imagine you, you have a very large Tinker Toy kit consisting of tens or hundreds or even thousands of computing elements and to solve a problem you would interconnect these computing uh, computing elements with each other so the basic idea my, my toy problem that i always use to explain this idea is the following Ex imagine a very simple equation something like um, a plus b in parenthesis times c on a digital computer, you would have to load the values of the three variables A, B, and C from memory. This would be three separate load instructions. Load A to some register, load B to some register, load C to some register. Then you would have to execute an add instruction and a multiplication instruction, and then you have to store the resulting value back to memory. So on a digital computer, you have basically to execute six instructions to perform a simple calculation such as a plus b times c on an analog computer you would take two computing elements one summer that is fed with the values of a and b and just spits out the result of the addition a plus b on its output and the output of the summer would then be connected to one of the inputs of a multiplier while the second input of the multiplier would be connected to the variable c and so you have 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 an interconnection of various computing elements that implement the solution of a problem. So you build a model, basically, and that is where the name comes from. An analog computer comes from the Greek analogon, which means a model. You build a typically electronic model of a problem you want to solve. And this has the great advantage that you don't have a step-by-step -step instruction sequence to execute to solve a problem, but your problem basically flows through a variety of interconnected computing elements. So you could uh, also say it's um, somehow dumb to um, to um, simulate or calculate a word um, which is analog in a digital form because it's just somehow dumb. Yeah, it's it, it's not naturally. Uh, to be honest, uh, nothing in nature works in an algorithmic fashion. That is really interesting. As powerful as the algorithmic idea is, it is completely artificial. Nothing in nature ever executed an algorithm. Why? Because it's on one side too slow. You have to split your problem in many, many little steps that are basically executed sequentially. And on the other side, it's way too energy uh, energy hungry no natural system could afford to use so much energy for solving problems when you have a look at a biological brain a brain consists of billions and billions of neurons and these neurons are interconnected in a certain way to solve a certain problem so there is no algorithm what makes your brain and my brain your brain and my brain is there 
specific interconnection of neurons and of course the synaptic weights. So a biological brain, for example, is a good example for the idea of how, how you can solve a problem by interconnecting computing elements with each other. The only difference is that a neuron does not really perform a simple mathematical operation such as addition or multiplication, but something more complex. But the basic idea is the same. Take a variety of computing elements and interconnect them to build a model, an electronic or biological model, to solve a problem that is described mathematically. So if the world is analog, when would you say the first analog computer was built by humans? <laughs> that is a very good question and um, the answer is pretty interesting too. The um, first analog computer one knows about is the mechanism of Antikythera. That is a small island near um, Greek. Uh, Greece and um, in the early 1900s um, divers um, found a very interesting artifact um, that turned out to be an analog computer. Um, nowadays uh, one um, the idea is that this dates back to about 100 before Christ, so it's more than 2,000 years old. And this mechanism is incredibly complex. It's way more complex than anything that humankind has produced uh, between about yeah, zero uh, about since Christ was born and about 1,500. So it was way ahead of its time and it was uh, uh, a high-performance analog computer for simulating several astronomical um, mecha mechanisms. So you could, for example, predict uh, solar eclipses or moon eclipses or uh, predict uh, the date of the next Olympiad or something like this. So this too was an analog computer. It was a bunch of intricate wheels and toothed wheels and whatnot that implemented orbital mechanics on a certain level that allowed the user to simulate, to, to make predictions about the future of several, um, several uh, astronomical events. But that's uh, a lot of years ago and um, <laughs> today we have uh, the 21st century, so somewhere um, has to be between these years, so um, how did it continue with the history of the analog computer? As so often, the following centuries were pretty boring, I think, at least from a technological point of view. Um, it took really many, many hundred years, uh, even more than a millennium, to, for example, reinvent a differential gear train. But in the 19th century, the idea of analog computing got a large boost uh, since the brother of Lord Kelvin, the Lord Kelvin, um, developed an, a mechanical integrator. And this intricate mechanical device was able to calculate an integral of a function. And his brother, Lord Kelvin, suddenly realized that when you have enough of these um, mechanical computing devices, together with, for example, summers and, and other things, you can actually solve pretty complex problems such as differential equations. And the differential equation is a very, very useful but very complicated mathematical object. With a differential equation, you can describe the time behavior of a dynamic system. So uh, regardless if you want to describe a weather prediction or or how an epidemic spreads, or um, how uh, air flows around a wing, whatever. All of these things are described by differential equations. And differential equations are typically really hard to solve. Um, to be honest, most differential equations have no analytical solution. So you need some kind of machine to find an approximate solution for these differential equations. And beginning with the ideas of uh, the Kelvin brothers, so to speak, Thomson, uh, Kelvin was uh, his name when he was knighted. Um, with these ideas, it was possible for the first time in human history to build a mechanical machine that was able to solve differential equations. And this idea was very, very fruitful because um, an analog computer is typically much simpler than a digital machine. Um, some people may know about the ideas of Babbage and Lovelace, for example, the analytical engine or the difference engine. These were 
paper, uh, paper tiger machines uh, from the 1830s, 1840s that actually never were built because the complexity was so overwhelming that it was well beyond the possibilities of the Victorian age in which Babbage and Lovelace worked. But an analog computer is much simpler than a digital machine. You don't represent uh, values by bits or by numbers or something like that, but in a me mechanical analog computer you represent the value, for example, by the rotation of an axis. So you need only one single axis with some two gears mounted on it to represent a, a, a complete variable. On a digital computer you would need hundreds or thousands of gears to accomplish the same feat. So analog computers were much, much simpler and this led to a rapid development of mechanical and later electromechanical analog computers. The problem, of course, is simpler is a relative term. It is simpler than building a digital computer from purely mechanical parts, but is nevertheless a nightmare to maintain and to program. Imagine you have a contraption with hundreds or thousands of gear trains, of integrators, of rotating disks, of counters, of whatever, keeping this running and keeping it running well enough to achieve a rather high degree of accuracy is really a very complicated task. So um, in the beginning 20th century, the idea was pretty ripe to implement analog computers like these by electronic means, further simplifying things a lot. I think also uh, a second or third um, practical ap application for analog computers was also the computation of tides. <laughs> yes, that is a. Uh, I, being a land rat, I completely underestimated this problem. Um, when you are riding by a sailboat, you need a very good understanding of the tidal forces acting on certain places on the globe. And this is by no means a simple task to predict tides. For example, you want to know when the tide is rising or falling at some area, area to um, speed up your journey, for example. And the tides are are determined by a lot of parameters such as the position of the Earth with respect to the Moon and the Sun plays a big role and there are lots of um, perturbance uh, 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 per terms, per perturbation terms, so sorry, uh, lots of perturbation terms and what it basically boils down to is you have to implement a Fourier syn synthesis. So you describe all your different contributors to a tide by an harmonic term by a sine or a cosine function. And the task is then to add a weighted sum of these harmonic terms, which is a tedious and horrible task if you want to do it by hand. But using a mechanical analog computer, like the tide predictor developed by Lord Kelvin, I think in 1876, if I'm not wrong, um, using a machine like this you could um, simulate tides for a certain location on the globe um, in a matter of minutes by just turning a manual crank and plotting a curve on a drum with paper, for example. So this was a really practical application of uh, mechanical analog computers and interestingly, at least in Germany, but I think in other countries as well, such tide predictors were, mechanical tide predictors were in use well into the 1950s and even even later. Why? Because they were so incredibly precise. In the 1950s, digital computers were still something rare and computing lots of harmonic functions with a 1950s digital computer would be a very, very slow task. Computing a sine or a cosine with a mechanical computer is pretty simple. You basically need something that rotates around a unit circle, for example, and you can then derive a sine and a cosine term from this. So um, tight predictors were used for decades based on purely mathematical, uh, on purely me mechanical means. And I think one of the largest tight predictors, at least built here in Germany, was able to sum about 40 or 50 harmonic terms for a tide prediction. It was a multi-ton uh, behemoth of mechanical parts, but had a really impressive computational power, at least uh, compared to other means in the 1950s. I think one of the bigger um, tide computers is standing in the Deutsche Museum in um, Munich. 
And which I also just remember is there were, is now a building instruction on the internet for such a mechanical integrator in general that you can um, 3D print at your home and that's quite interesting. That is cool. Um, be so kind and send me the link. That would be a great application for a 3D printer. <laughs> I, I will uh, do this, but um, yeah. So uh, in general, analog computers are coming back, but uh, about this we will talk in the um, next episode of this podcast. But um, let's come back to the history of analog computers. So which was then the uh, next step in the history of analog computers? Because mechanical, yeah, you have said it, it's uh, a huge pain in the ass to um, maintain <laughs> so electricity came and um, what was the next step interestingly people just held on to mechanical means of computation but they got rid of the mechanical interconnection so um, to imagine a mechanical analog computer imagine a multitude of mechanical tinker toy kits and hundreds of rotating shafts and gears and whatever and in, in a mechanical analog computer to reconfigure it actually meant you have to completely disassemble and reassemble it in an other structure to solve a different problem and um, Rockefeller financed um, advanced mechanical analog computer, these were called differential analyzer, since they analyze differential equations. And this was an interesting hybrid um, beast, since the computing elements were still mechanically. You integrated by rotating disks and uh, little wheels roll rolling on these disks, and you added by using differential gears. But the interconnection was no longer, longer done with mechanically with rotating shafts and the like, but the interconnection was was done in an electronic way. So you had a synchro motor and a synch synchronous pickup. You had a, 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 an angle encoder on some computing elements output, which controlled a synchro motor on the input of, an under, of another mechanical computing element. So you had a, a complex electronic system to interconnect your equally complex mechanical computing elements. And as impressive as this is it's completely crazy if you ask me you have the worst from both worlds you got you get an additional complexity by adding a complex servo scheme to an equally complex mechanical analog computer so the next step was and this was a step in the right direction to give up all the mechanical means of computation and go to electronic implementations for example most of the uh, listeners will remember at least i hope so uh, the kirchhoff laws from physics in school and the kirchhoff law for example tells you that when you, you ha when you have several resistors being connected to each other the sum of the currents at the connection point must be zero. There is no current vanishing or coming from nothing. And if all currents add up to zero at a certain point, you get the addition as an operation for free. Physics solves the problem of add some values. Okay, your values are now represented as currents, but um, the addition is basically done with a couple of resistors. And you can equally simply, for example, implement a, in, in, an operation which is pretty hard when you do it manually, you can pretty easily implement integration by electronic means. How do you do this? For example, you charge a capacitor in an ideal capacitor, you can move charges. So you can move charges in a way that one of the plates has excess charges and the other plate has less charge. And the capacitor basically stores, stores this charge. So if you can control the current that is being applied to the capacitor and thus changes the charge of the capacitor, what the capacitor basically does is it computes the time integral for you. So using basic passive electronic components such as resistors and capacitors, you can get an idea of how to implement mathematical operations. And the at the heart of every electronic analog computer back in the 1940s until now is the so-called operational amplifier. And um, by the way, that is the cause for the name operational amplifier, since these amplifiers were 
specifically developed for implementing mathematical operations. That's why they are called like this. And using an operational amplifier and a handful of resistors or a capacitor, you can build black boxes, little black boxes that can perform addition or, for example, integration. And now things get really way more simple than in the previous mechanical analog computers. In a mechanical analog computer, you have to make a mechanical connection from one rotating shaft to another rotating shaft, which is really complicated. You get friction, you get backlash problems, really complicated. When you do everything electronically, your variables are represented, for example, by a voltage. So a variable is just a voltage in a cable. You can connect the output of one computing element that yields a voltage to the input of another computing element which expects a voltage and your interconnect scheme basically only consists of a bunch of cables which connect the outputs of computing elements to the inputs of other computing elements making life much more easy and what is really interesting is analog computing quite like digital computing was an idea whose time has come. In the late 1930s and early 1940s, there were completely unrelated developments towards an electronic analog computer. On the German side, there was, of course, the war being a very big driver for developments like these. And the largest driver in this respect was the development of the A4 rocket which became then infamously known as the Vengeance Weapon 2, the V2. And controlling a rocket is really not an easy task. You have to counteract shear winds and whatever disturbs the flight path, the planned flight path of your rocket um, by external forces. And therefore you have to solve differential equations. And it was of course out of the question to build a mechanically flight control computer. This would be way too large, too big and not robust enough to be operated in a, in a, in a flying rocket. And so Helmut Hölz and one of my idols came uh, to the great idea why not use for example capacitors and resistors to solve differential equations on the other side of the uh, sea in in the united states there were other developments not war related interestingly towards um, electronic analog computers um, one was a development led by george a philbrick and he was interested in simulating reaction kinetic in the chemical industry. When you have, for example, a complex chemical reaction, it is very desirable to know in advance how quick will it uh, run, um, which side produ products will I get, in which concentrations will I have, which product of my reaction, and so on. And this too is described by you know, pretty complicated differential equations. And George A. Philbrick um, developed uh, special analog computers for the solution of these problems and other developments in the United States took place at uh, the California uh, Institute of Technology, the Caltech and the uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. So these groups had no interconnection whatsoever. How could they? It was a raging world war. But the idea, the time for this idea just had come in the early 1940s. But uh, war, war, uh, war ended at some point, and um, a lot of uh, uh, funny fact: um, a lot of technology um, in general was um, developed uh, because of or in the wars, and that's quite funny, I think. Yeah. Um, or what? What means funny? Yes, war being the father of all things, that is pretty true, and uh, it was very true for the Second World War because the involved nations, the large uh, combatants were very advanced in their respective technologies and many of the technologies we still use today have their very roots in, in the Second World War. That is yeah, interesting and a little bit frightening as well, yes. Uh, oh, um, when we talk about the war, um, a question came to my mind. Um, in the Manhattan Project after the war, or in the world, where they also um, analog computers been used to calculate all the stuff for um, the nuclear bombs. 
Only one that I know of. That is a very interesting question, um, and it is not easy to answer. Um, the very early digital computer ENIAC, the Electronic Numerical Integrator and Calculator, um, which is often hailed as being the first electronic digital computer, which is debatable, uh, but not uh, here, um, was, for example, used for several computations towards the hydrogen bomb, for example. And the interesting thing is, albeit the ENIAC was a digital computer from its basic structure, it more closely resembled an analog computer. So, yeah, maybe a little bit, but um, there's only one dedicated real analog computer that I know of that was used in the Manhattan Project, and this was a mechanical, again, analog computer, which was used to simulate the path and the lifetime of neutrons in a prompt critical core of a nuclear bomb. But at least as far as I know, the vast majority of computations during the Manhattan Project was already done by digital means, by punch card equipment um, that was modified by the Manhattan Group, um, for example, using an IBM 604 um, calculator as something resembling a CPU with today's terms and connecting this uh, to a punch card reader and a tabulating machine and thus forming, which uh, be later became known as the CPC, the card programmed calculator. So that's really interesting and I'm really puzzled that analog computers obviously didn't play a large role during the Manhattan Project. I would have expected otherwise. Uh, what also came to my mind uh, when you talk about the Manhattan Project and digital computers, um, I don't know if you know Feynman, the f um, famous physicist and Nobel yes. Prize winner. He um, written a little bit about uh, calculating um, with digital computers in his book. Um, I don't know. Joking. Yes, uh, yes, right. Then he written a little bit, a uh, beautiful little um, article or how you call it in English, um, excerpt about um, the computing it in the Manhattan Project. Yeah, that is really interesting. And there are so many interesting things that came out of the Manhattan Project. For example, Monte Carlo simulations, which play a really large role nowadays in simulation problems. Mm -hmm. So we um, uh, somehow stuck, uh, we, um, are stuck at the world. So after the world, um, how did um, the analog computer history go on and um, how analog computers spread around the world? Basically, it was the next war, um, the starting Cold War that triggered a very rapid development uh, in the aerospace technology. And if you if your task is to develop um, ballistic missiles or hypersonic planes, you need a lot of computational power for the development and you also need a lot of computational power to control your rockets or your planes. And that was the main driver for analog computer development after the Second World War. Beginning in the late 1940s, ever more complex electronic analog computers uh, were developed and early customers were, for example, the predecessor of NASA, the NACA, N -A -C -A, um, that used uh, such analog computers, for example, to, for the simulation of uh, advanced aircraft and the like. And when the aerospace industry basically sponsored very complex and large-scale and high-performance analog computers, other application areas developed automatically. For example, car manufacturers started using analog computers to simulate cars, sometimes to an extent that you didn't even have to build a prototype to be able to drive it with a car simulator, for example, that you could really use to ride a simulated car. There were flight simulators which were incredibly precise and realistic. By the way, there's a very interesting uh, publication called Black Magic and Gremlins that can be found online as a PDF document and that is a very interesting, makes a very interesting read and is hilarious to read. It describes the early days of analog flight simulation and the problems encountered during these 
1950 area, it, it's really unbelievable from today's point of view. But it's also unbelievable how exact these simulations were. When you think, for example, about the X-15 project, the X-15 was the experimental plane capable of going up to Mach 6, at least for short uh, periods of time. Every single flight was meticulously planned in advance. So you had dozens and hundreds of hours of flights in simulators to prepare the pilot for a simple test flight with the X-15. Only after these simulation runs everyone was confident enough to perform a 10 or 15 mini minute flight with this high performance aircraft. And analog computers were basically used in all areas of technology and scientific uh, analysis. Really no, no area where you did not use analog computers, aerospace technology. Um, as you said to me prior to this um, podcast, we wouldn't have been on the moon without analog computers. We couldn't have controlled at least the early kinds of rockets. Um, the Saturn V rocket, of course, had a digital um, control, com control system for the Saturn V uh, rockets, but the really time critical problems in controlling even a large rocket like the Saturn V were still done in an analog way. And for example, the Russian Proton rocket used an analog onboard computer for decades to come. Uh, we used analog computers in industrial control systems. We used analog computers in everything that flies or rolls or swims in medical applications really everywhere. Interesting. In the world, there are two very nice things, analog computers and everything that has to do with nuclear stuff. <laughs> <Definitely>. <laughs> yes. And um, analog computers and nuclear stuff, that's the perfect match. But um, um, also, um, nuclear reactors were simulated on um, analog computers and they are shown, the, the analog computer showed some problems there because analog computers aren't the perfect computer as well as digital computers. So what were the problems at the times at the time they had with um, especially nuclear simulations? That is a very interesting question. An analog computer typically represents values by voltages or by currents. And that is a blessing on one side, since it's very simple. You just need one connection between two computing elements to transfer a value. The problem with this is your resolution is pretty finite. You get about a resolution of three to four decimal places. So you can represent a value like 1.234, if you are really good, but a value like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, you just cannot represent on an analog computer. And this leads to a problem called scaling. You have to scale the mathematical system describing the real world system you want to simulate. And scaling is a tedious process, but can be done. The problem is now, what do you do when you have a problem that involves variables which can range over very, very wide intervals? When you simulate a car, for example, the variables are enclosed in pretty small intervals of value, possible values. You have acceleration and velocity and whatever, but there's no, you, you never have the problem that your acceleration exceeds maybe 1G You in a normal car. You won't get to 100G or 10 million G or something like this. That is completely different when you have a look at nuclear reactors, for example. In a nuclear reactor, you have very slowly running processes like heating up water, watching water boil, so to speak. That is a very slow process. But in the very same system, you have very, very high speed processes, such as the movement of neutrons, the moderation of neutrons, the splitting of a nucleus. And if you, for example, want to simulate a nuclear reactor undergoing a, a power excursion, for example, that will cause water to boil in the reactor. And this boiling water will affect the reactivity of the nuclear reactor. Uh, determined by its so-called void coefficient. And this is a very nasty problem. As long as water does not boil, it's pretty simple to describe the water. 
in the moment when your water starts to boil, you get into trouble with an analog computer simulating this because the formation of the bubbles is a very rapid process. You get tiny bubbles in fractions of a second, in very small fractions of a second. And these bubbles can expand very rapidly or collapse very rapidly. And this is a completely different realm of values compared with the values you have during normal operations. And this is not easy to scale for simulation on an analog computer. So an analog computer has problems solving um, questions which involve variables of very different orders of magnitude. And one way to solve this is to, and this is would be a topic for a com completely separate podcast um, lecture, would be to couple an analog computer with a digital computer. The digital computer is much slower than the analog computer, but the digital computer has no problem with variables spanning decades and decades of possible values. So you could have an analog computer taking care of the normal problems. And as soon as the analog computer reaches um, its capability of representing values, the digital computer could rescale the problem for the analog computer and then have the analog computer continue its simulation, but with a rescaled version of the problem. Um, but this became very clear in the simulation of nuclear reactors, that you have variables in very, very different sizes, which are hard to scale for the solution on an analog computer. Um, and that's a topic, the hybrid computer, it's called. It's a very nice topic for the next episode of this podcast. So um, that will be... Our, uh, when, you, when you hear this episode, maybe one or two weeks later, this um, episode will be published. But um, before that, we have um, a little bit more history to go. Um, we, uh, we both are from Germany, and Germany had a large um, electric uh, manufacturer called Telefunken. And... What you have in mind, uh, what you have to keep in mind, that um, at these early stages of electronics we talked about, uh, tubes were the transistor of the day, and at some point tubes had their problems. They uh, need a lot of um, energy and all the, uh, sort of that stuff. And then um, in the 50s and 60s, the transistor where the um, was developed, and the firma, uh, the company I talked about, Telefunken, had made um, a huge, uh, undergone a huge risk um, a huge risk by developing a transistorized analog computer. So what um, is about that? That is a really interesting story. Um, Telefunken did not actually plan to build an analog computer. That was the brainchild of two of its engineers back in the 1950s, uh, Dr. Kettle and Dr. Klei. Um, at least I had an interesting phone conversation with Dr. Klei. Uh, Kettle died in the, I think, late 1960s already. Um, and they built an analog computer basically for in-house application. They were interested in um, telecommunication systems and needed an analog computer to simulate complex modulator and demodulator systems. Interestingly, this in-house developed analog computer aimed at in-house applications um, was seen by customers from industry. Uh, they got um, tours through the facilities and saw this analog computer and many of the uh, traditional industry customers demanded to buy such an analog computer. So Telefunken was basically forced into building analog computers, something they were not proficient at this time. They built radio transmitters and radar systems and all kind of high-tech but no computers, at least not in the 19th fifties. And management of Telefunken made a very bold decision. They decided to build a rather small series of these vacuum tube based analog computers. I think 32 of these machines, which were then called RA463-2. RA stands for Rechner Analog, analog computer in Telefunken lingo. And the management decision was we built 32 of these machines as a stopgap measure, but 
we start immediate development of a transistorized analog computer. And that is really completely crazy. Um, if you think that this happened in the first to second half, uh, in the mid 50s about, the uh, vacuum tube based prototype analog computer was built from 1953 to 1955. And then the decision was made to build a transistor-based analog computer, and that's what a bold decision because transistors were developed 1948, and in 1955 a transistor was still nothing you could buy in quantities. A transistor was a delicate um, electronic device, a del device you had sometimes to build yourself, so you had to set up your own semiconductor manufacturing, and transistors were not really reliable, they had really bad characteristics, and the very idea of betting on transistors will become good enough, quickly enough, for us to build a transistorized analog computer is just unheard of. And uh, in 1959, just four years later, Telefunken was able to unveil the world's first transistorized desktop computer, which was in fact an analog computer called the RAT, Rechner Analog Tisch Tabletop Analog Computer. Um, at the Hannover Fair here in Germany. And this machine was an instant hit because it outperformed and outclassed everything you could buy from other vendors. It was much smaller. It could be placed on a table. Your table had to be pretty sturdy since the system weighs about 105 kilograms, but it only needed single phase power, had a power consumption of about 90 watts. It was real, really a game changer. And it took American manufacturers such as Electronic Associates quite some time to catch up with Telefunken since they were not confident enough in the 1950s to start development of transistorized analog computers in earnest and only with the demonstration of Telefunken's transistorized tabletop analog computer they got a pretty harsh wake-up call that forced them to invest lots of money and man hours to develop their own transistorized analog computer. And maybe when we talk about manufacturers for analog computers, um, also uh, quite interesting, um, Dornier, maybe you don't, uh, know Dornier from uh, Planes, they also produced um, analog computers or they bought them from another company. That is a very interesting story indeed. Donier uh, built really outstanding aircraft such as the DO-31 that was a vertical takeoff and landing transport jet plane in the, 19, in the early 1960s. And uh, this was the trigger for Donier to get into the analog computer business because they needed lots of computing power to simulate their vertical takeoff and landing jet transport system. And at first they built analog computers under license from a nowadays unknown American company called Simulators Incorporated. But um, in the 1970s, they also acquired the license to build a very tiny and very cute little analog computer, the DO80, that was uh, developed in uh, Germany by uh, Mr. Becker. And uh, later on, Donnier uh, started development of their own uh, range of um, analog and actually hybrid computers, the DO960. And that was a very large modular analog computer that was coupled, tightly coupled to a digital computer and ideally suited, for example, for flight simulation. And by the way, that's the best analog computer ever produced, in my opinion. <laughs> that is good, because in my opinion, it's of course the Telefunken RA770. But yes, I think both opinions are very valid. Of course. Uh, you talked about the RA770. Um, what, um, what is this for uh, analog computer? Because it's also something special. Yeah, it's very special, especially for me. Uh, for me, that's the holy grail. If you ever have a car in front of you which has RA770 as its number plate, it's probably me. Um, and this was the last um, analog computer developed and manufactured by Telefunken because before they went bust in the mid-1970s. And the RA770 is 
from my point of view, the ultimate analog computer, the ultimate classic analog computer. Um, it was German engineering at its best. It was completely over-engineered, which was a real problem because it was, was way too expensive to compete with much cheaper machines from um, the United States, for example. Uh, but it's really a dream machine to restore, to maintain and to program. It's really just a beautiful machine. And Telefunken used only the highest quality parts and the best ideas. So for me, it's the pinnacle of analog computing. Yeah. So um, a little bit uh, we have um, have to go back to the history because we um, talk already uh, 45 minutes and we don't um, want to overdo this first episode. So analog computers are somehow forgotten today. No one knows about analog computers um, anymore and the most people ignore them nowadays. So what happened to the analog computer that no one knows it anymore or just ignores them? That is a really sad story. Um, it's a good example for a paradigm shift. Um, the development of analog, there, there are many reasons that led to the actual uh, extinction of analog computers, uh, which will see a resurrection in the 21st century, by the way. Um, the first reason was analog computers, were electronic analog computers, were basically developed starting in the 1940s. So most of the proponents of analog computers were roughly of the same age. So most of these proponents, for example, in academic circles, um, were retired around the mid to late 1970s. And the new professors, of course, had to do everything different than their predecessors. And this was one of the reasons why analog computers pretty quickly vanished from universities and the like in the late 1970s, early 1980s. Another problem of an analog computer is the way it is programmed. To program an analog computer, you have to change the interconnections between the various computing elements. Interconnections means cables, actual cables, and a typical analog computer program consists of hundreds and sometimes thousands of cables connecting computing elements with each other. That is a very tedious process programming a big analog computer. It can take you from hours to days to weeks. That is really problematic. And changing the problem, the program uh, from an, of an analog computer from one problem to be solved to another problem was also a very time-consuming task. You didn't have to unplug uh, hundreds or thousands of cables and plug in different cables. Typically, all these cables were um, clustered in a so-called patch field and you could remove the overall patch field and replace it by another pre-patched patch field, but you still had to change hundreds of potentiometers and function generators and whatever. So switching from one program to another program was a really time-consuming process for an analog computer. And the third problem was analog computers required high-quality parts. Um, just looking at the resistors used in a summer of an analog computer shows that these resistors are special resistors with a precision of 0.005% and sometimes even better. So a single resistor cost a fortune, a single resistor. On the other hand, you had the upcoming digital computers. A digital computer is basically a very simple and cheap machine. You need lots of logic gates, but every gate is really cheap, especially when you can integrate it on an integrated circuit. You don't need highest precision capacitors and resistors and hand-selected and matched pairs of transistors and whatnot. So digital computers became quickly much more inexpensive than analog computers. Analog computers, at least classic analog computers, pretty quickly hit a financial boundary. They couldn't get much cheaper because this would compromise the quality of the parts used in the analog computer and thus degrade its precision. So in the 1970s, the costs of digital computers and analog computers basically crossed each other. The analog computers basically stayed 
at a constant cost per computing power while the digital computers got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And to um, add to this, digital computers have no problem changing from one problem to another. You just load a different sequence of instructions into the main memory of the digital computer and that's it. So although digital computers could for a long time not compete with their analog counterparts, they were so much easier to operate and so much cheaper than analog computers that they basically replaced analog computers starting in the late 70s, early 1980s until today where analog computers are mostly forgotten but are about to experience um, a revival, a very interesting revival. That's a nice um, connection to the next episode we will do and um, a great um, point to end this episode. But before that, I have one um, last note um, about the patch panels. Um, if you search an error in these <coughs> cable spaghettis you produce, that's a huge pain in the ass too when you um, patched one or two cables in the wrong patch field. That is right, but um, at least large-scale analog computers had facilities to facilitate this task um, that was, for example, called static checks. So if you have um, a problem you want to program on an analog computer, for example, some nasty system of differential equations, you would typically solve your differential equations, for example, manually for single value or two or three values that was not too complicated but it allowed you to have, make an educated guess about the behavior of these differential equations and in static check you could uh, set up the integrators to start with known values and then basically test your circuit by probing it with a voltmeter and looking the computer is not running, it's in a static mode, it just propagates static values to through your computer setup and by probing your computer program, your interconnection scheme of the computing elements, you could typically pretty quickly find patching errors. But you are right, it's a nevertheless a tedious process. But when you have a look at modern code and the, the complexity of algorithms we have nowadays, it's no way more complicated than solving a problem on a digital computer. It just looks more intimidating due to the vast amount of cables. Mm -hmm. And one, now the really last note of this podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, in my German podcast, I would say, yeah, um, you could drive to Wiesbaden, but uh, this is the international version of it. So if you ever gonna be in Germany, you bent have the world's biggest collection of analog computers. Yes, and our uh, listeners are honestly and cordially invited to visit us. It's near Wiesbaden in the middle of Germany and basically inaccessible by public transportation. By the way, you need uh, a rental car to uh, visit us. But what you can see are analog computers from the 50s to the late 80s and even some modern developments in analog computing. And most, not all, but most of the machines um, available in the um, collection are operational. So if you have some toy problem you always wanted to solve on an analog computer, feel free to patch your own analog program and watch the machine running it through. Yeah, interesting. And uh, the, as, I, as I said, that's a beautiful collection uh, you have and <laughs> Thank you very much. somehow the biggest in the world, but um, I try to change it. Um, <laughs> Good luck, also, I keep my fingers crossed for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, and also uh, maybe a little bit more accessible in Stuttgart in um, Eastern Germany at a lowest part of Germany in um, the, at the University of Stuttgart there is the Computer Museum Stuttgart where I um, do my little things with analog computers. We have also a quite nice collection with analog computers and I try to keep them working more or less and yeah. And we just take a short break and record the next episode but you have to wait um, one or two weeks. I don't know exactly how long I will make um, the upload set schedule. But until then, I would um, say goodbye to you and a huge thanks to you, Bernd, for taking the time to uh, speak in this podcast. And I think it was um, a really interesting first episode. Thank you very much for the invitation. Yeah, and then 
Goodbye and until the next episode.